Welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast, where we listen to and learn from the people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here's your host, Rob Schwartz, CEO of TBWA Shiat Day New York. All right, well, thank you for listening. Uh, you're in for a treat today. Uh, we're here with Jayanta Jenkins, the Global Group Creative Director of Twitter. Hello. And uh, this is uh, this is special because, you know, Jayanta is, uh, I would say, one of the top three creative director, art directors in the world today. Uh, great photographer. He's a Thank great you. DJ. You got a lot going on. A lot of passions that fortunately get to get played into what I do every day, what we get to do, you know, like it's about culture. So it's a lot of fun to take my personal passions and put them into the work I get to do. Well, let's get to some news. So uh, we're, what, five weeks out of Can Lions and somebody walks home with some hardware. You, what, you got a Grand Prix for at home? Yeah, yeah. I, I tell you, Rob, it was really, it was a nice um it was my first time going to Can one, and two. You know, I've been at Twitter now just eleven months, and so that work that I got to um, create was, you know, my first thing out of the gates there. So, um, and it was Twitter's first time really entering anything into the show. So, it, on a lot of different levels, it was really rewarding. It was fun. Uh, lots of gratitude for the people that helped make that happen. You know, a lot of. From Jack Dorsey to Leslie Berlin, the CMO, to Joel, um, the guy I report to, the VP of brand. Every, Jack Dorsey, CEO. Of Jack Twitter. Dorsey, CEO. That Jack Dorsey. That one, yeah. But he was really involved in that work. So it was a, it was a nice win for everyone, for the organization. Yeah, I mean, I remember, uh, you know, you told me a little bit about the work, but it wasn't really until I was coming off a freeway in L.A. and um, off the 10. And there was Hillary and Donald right there yeah. with the hashtag. And, uh, I mean, you felt it. I mean, you just, like, there was a power to it. Maybe yeah. talk a little bit about how you came up with it. Yeah, well, you know, there's a couple different ways in on that. One, when I got to Twitter, literally the first week, um, the assignment came across my desk to do out of home. They wanted to do something that made Twitter top of mind to reclaim sort of Twitter's place in conversation. And the place that I went to in terms of trying to dimensionalize that was using the hashtag. And as you know, um, you know, lots of brands use hashtags to sort of reinforce campaign themes. Uh, you know, movements use t- hashtags. But the trick was how do you reclaim it in a way that really shows how important and how visceral conversation happens on Twitter. By the way, first use of a brand, hashtag, a brand you worked on, Gatorade, yeah. hashtag, win from within. Yeah, exactly. TWA Shite. I'm exactly. just, just saying. No, no, I was there. I, <laughs> <laughs> um, but interesting, just just to come back on the on the ask. So it's oftentimes in this digital age tough to justify at home. So what I find very disruptive is that here you have the most social media savvy company, which basically invented social media, uh, asking for the oldest analog media. How did that all happen? Well, you know, again, well, not again, but just humanizing that brand and taking something digital and actually putting it into a traditional space, I think really made the brand feel more human and more connected mm. to the environment, to the things that were happening in specific places, you know, like the Trump-Hillary thing. Um, you know, so it was really 
nice to take Twitter, which is on your phone, and to put it into a physical space and to use conversations that were happening that you would look at your phone and look up and be reminded of where to go to redirect yourself to hear and listen to or read about the conversation, rather. But the thing about the Hillary and Trump um, work, you know, we were in an environment where the um, the candidacy was about personalities, mm. you know, and um, not really about the issues. And, you know, the Trump hashtag was, um, what was it? Uh, make, Mer- make America Great Again. Mm-hmm. And then uh, with Hillary, um, I'm with her. And it was just when you stripped that away and made it about what this was really about, which was these two against one another, and just the mistrust, the deceit, the the name calling, it just kind of really symbolized a lot of different things and just two images, you know? Yeah, so we're going to get into this. I think the, let's just talk a little bit about the campaign. For those of you who haven't seen it, um, you know, it's 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 reduction, reductionism at, at its finest. It's a hashtag, it's photography, it's the Twitter logo. So for the um, you know Hillary Donald one, you actually uh, had them. You know, I don't know how many photographs you looked at, but you talk a little bit about the process because you had to get them uh, looking uh, mistrustful of each other. Well, they didn't have to look very hard for those images, to be honest <laughs> with you. But, you know, what we do as storytellers and, and people who work on brands is it's about narrative. And we found the two most compelling images that really, really sort of showed or gave depth to, to the whole back and forth between those two. Um, but then there was also the, as you said, the issues. So there's the gun idea. There's yeah. rainbow flag idea. There's marijuana idea. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, exactly. And again, you know, the the election became about personalities and we made it about the issues. We reminded people what they were voting for and what they what we need to be thinking about going into this election or into the election uh, last year. And um, it just ended up really finding a lot of provocative, powerful imagery that really iconically and graphically told these stories that made people pay attention and care and did it in such a way that, you know, like you said, there are three elements, the hashtag, the image, and then the Twitter logo to really... Um, not use a lot of words to allow people to engage. To not- and, and yeah, and I think just on that point, because you know, I'm a, I'm a big uh, Twitter believer. I love Twitter. I've always felt Twitter is it's a writer's media, and you know, it's a word media. It's you know, how can you be compelling in under 140 characters? Media. Um, yet the irony of the idea. Is that there's no words? Yeah. Well, we, well, you know the the old quote: "A picture's worth a thousand words," you know. And I think again, you take a hashtag like Black Lives Matter. When you look at it, it's it can really mean a lot of different things to different people. Uh, it can evoke the idea: well, blue lives matter, mm. uh, white lives matter, all lives matter. But the way that we put it together visually was showing uh, a silhouette of someone with their hands up with the red and blue lights of a police car behind it. That there, for me, made it accessible to anyone to put themselves into that situation. Um, You know, with the Hillary and Trump, again, you can put into any context you want to what that means to you. Um, In a way, it needed to transcend the sort of written hashtag so we could begin to have a conversation with people, a dialogue. And from that work, what was really 
interesting. Strategically, what came out of that work was the idea that Twitter is a brand that shows sides and doesn't take sides. And that really helped us, you know, it became, it gave us a clear line of sight to some of the work that came after that. But that work, as simple as it was, as reductive as it was, as wordless as it was, it really began to inform a strategic point of view for the brand. Yeah, I think uh, what was also very powerful about it uh, was um, the brand asserting itself, Twitter asserting itself as, guys, we're media. You know, remember CBS, remember NBC, yeah, and Twitter. Versus, I think, uh, you know, there was a moment there where uh, Twitter didn't know what they were, what they had on their hands. Yeah, you know, it's it's a medium for the people, by the people. And I think in a lot of ways, um, I wouldn't say that Twitter didn't know who they were. They just didn't find the sharpest way to articulate it, mm. you know. And now that we have uh, CMO Leslie Berlin there and... She's been working very closely with Jack and with everyone to really continue to evolve and refine Twitter's point of view of who they are so they can articulate themselves very clearly to the world with purpose. So that work was, you know, part two um, in, the re- in the launch of the brand because they did some work before right. I'd gotten there as well. And, you know, it was Twitter is what's happening. Mm-hmm. And that line actually is in the product. So a lot of what you're seeing um, from the brand is really looking inward and just holding up who it is to the world, the hashtag, what's happening, Um, show sizes and take sides. And, you know, now we're evolving to a place of Twitter is a place where you can see every side, Mm -hmm. you know, which is, you know, it's it's very true of the brand, of the platform. Yeah, absolutely. And I because I think there was probably a danger there where people would say, oh, well, that's Trump's media. And, uh, of course, yeah. we know that, uh, yes, well, he's a user of it, but that doesn't make it the sole. He's not the sole proprietor of this thing. But the, the genius of, of um, you know, how people use Twitter is that you do find it, it, it's so, you know, open-ended that you can use it. Brands can use it the same way, you know, a president does. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a means to have conversation with people and meaningful conversation, to spark conversation, to spark debate. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that. You know, there are voices that are, you know, politically louder. There are voices that um, support conversations that are happening politically. I think it's just so multi-layered, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So to your point, it's not a person's platform. It is the people's platform. So that's the beauty of it, I think. Yeah, I've always felt uh, there, there's two dynamics on Twitter. There's the information and then there's the me-formation. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that term before. Information being, you know, what's out there yeah. and then I'm going to tell you, oh, I'm going to have a donut somewhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Interesting. And then I guess one thing I did also want to talk to you about, um, because of the campaign, do you feel that there's a, um, I don't know, kind of a newfound respect for out-of-home as a media, did you find like internally people said, you know what, at home, that was the best thing we could have done? I Look, I have to step back and answer that question from a different perspective. I worked with you and, you know, with Lee Clow as well. And there's a, a person who has, has the highest regard for... Um, as an art director, the visual medium and the use of out of home, the use of print, the use of TV. But, you know, to be honest with you, um, Lee, the spirit of Lee Clow was with me in, in creating that work just in terms of the simplicity, in terms of the iconicness. In terms of Twitter, I think, you know, it was just a gift that we gave 
the brand to be able to simplify and, and deliver a powerful piece of messaging in the way that we did. Um, you know, uh, who knows what that campaign mm-hmm. would have been in someone else's hands, but I just know from where I come from and what I love and how I like to communicate, we were able to do something, I think, pretty special in that moment in time. Yeah, without question. I think what's also interesting, too, is if you look at an adjacent uh, brand like Snapchat, you know, they're very big on at-home, you know, yeah. cryptic at-home, uh, you know, the little ghost on the field of yellow. So there's something interesting that these very, you know, new school 21C brands are going back to kind of very old school 19C, 19th century media. Yeah, but, but think about that because, it, you know, the Twitter, when we were doing the at-home stuff, of course, the Snapchat thing was very present. But the thing that we talked about was context. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can have a logo and it can be subversive, it can almost be like Shepherd Fairies Obey, but there wasn't really context. There wasn't storytelling. There exactly. wasn't anything that was really defining or being definitive about the brand. So, and you know, at the same time, Facebook was doing their live out of home campaign as well. And so, you know, I think we looked at the environment, or I looked at the environment, but also really, you know, respectfully thought about how do we make the most provocative work and the most, you know, inclusive work that got people to engage in a conversation and not just try to be, you know, hey, look at our logo. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, you said it uh, earlier in storytelling and narrative, you know, uh, just the way you did uh, Black Lives Matter narrative. And when I looked at Snapchat, I'm not saying one's wrong or right or better or worse, but Snapchat felt like utility. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. you know, look for the ghost versus here's a story. It just happens to be a reduced story with no words. And, uh, you know, just I think just uh, different approaches, but the same media, yep. which I think was, was pretty cool. Do you think that uh, as you know, you being a former agency person jumping to the client. So you talk about disruptions. That's a career disruption. Um, I, maybe talk a little bit about that. Like, how did that? Yeah. You know, I will say that. Um, and I've said this before, the best work that I've been a part of from my days at Wyden and through TBWA Shiat were because of the relationships we've had, I've had with clients. And, you know, in the Nike days with Wyden, you had clients that understood their business better than you ever could, but it wasn't used as a tool to marginalize the work. It was a tool to help you build upward. So a lot of those ideas I'm most proud of from my Widen days, there was a client across the the way that kind of looked at the work and helped elevate it. So what I'm getting at is I've always had the component of listening and having this mutual mutuality, mm-hmm. reciprocity. The same thing when um, we, we were at TBWA together and I worked on Gatorade. We had great relationships with the, the people in, in Chicago that really helped build the work upward. So I think in a lot of ways I've always, um, you know, carried that with me, this listening skill. And um, going from, you know, agency to, and I went to Apple to work on Beats for a bit before I went to Twitter, but even there, you know, it it was the conversations where we built to work was very collaborative. So, um, you know, at Twitter it's the same thing, you know. I don't find it's very different, obviously, but it's not unlike what I've always been doing. I've always had lots of, you know, the ability to listen and build work with clients. So we were both feeling like we had a hand in making something great. 
Yeah, I, I, I love just what you said there because it's, um, it's about believing in communications, believing in advertising. I mean, do you, do you think that uh, um, if you look at the other way, the, the relationships that, that, that didn't always produce the best results, was that one of the reasons? I could, you know, if you look around in our industry, um, and I listen to my peers, and there's a lot of I, 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 me, 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 and they, 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 and you look at the work, and you're like, uh huh, huh. Um, but you know, you can really look at work. You can not even just work. You can look at film. You can read a book. You can mm. look at whatever you love, artwork, and you can see the process of fluidity, or you can see the process of just tension and and that that thing that doesn't allow the work to just flow. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I can somewhat assume that when I see something that really doesn't feel right, it, there were two people with opposing opposing points of view that just basically diminished the work. Yeah, I, I think there's something really powerful in that. There was a, um, I once heard this from, uh, from, a, from a designer who said that uh, when you love the process, that love goes into the work. Yeah. And I think sometimes, just like you say, the um, the adversarial roles, the two sides of the table, the client versus the agency, yeah. instead of, hey, we're in this together to make something amazing. Yeah, I mean, you do it, you know, client agency, studio director, you know, it's like you just, it's ever present in, in those types of industries. When it doesn't work, you see it very bluntly. Yeah. So, so I, you, you mentioned, you know... Um, Client agency, studio director. What else uh, is sort of in the in the Jayanta Jenkins world? You've got a pretty robust photography following. I mean, maybe talk to us a little bit about what else you do in terms of your creative expression. You know, um, there's a lot of stuff. I I'm very fortunate that I get to travel quite a bit, so I'm, I'm always inspired and in going to other cultures and just being an outsider. I particularly love Japan um, because it, it's the place where I get to very much be an outsider. But there's a, um, you get a really interesting perspective on a culture and yourself in that culture. So I really love to travel and to sort of take myself out of my comfort zone. Um, in terms of photography, I mean, it's just something that I've loved since I was a kid. And I've always loved to study light and I love, um, you know, just looking at people and, and just kind of being a, a bit of a, um, you know, just someone that loves to just sit still and just take in and just observe the nuances of the way people smile or body moves. And I'd like to capture that sort of thing. Um, music. I mean, music is all types of music, but music for me has been something that has, you know, been I just I just love to be stimulated by different artists who have different approaches and different ways of telling stories, lyrically or through music. And then I love, um, you know, just art, period, you know. So, you know, those are kind of the, the fundamentals. There's, there's a lot more, but those are the fundamentals of what really keep me interested, engaged, and wanting to stay curious, yeah. you know. Well, what's great about your uh, photography, we'll start there. I mean, um, it's not... Uh... It's not a selfie at the zoo. I mean, <laughs> your stuff is very, you know, beautifully composed. I mean, people who follow you, you know, you know this. How how long do you spend on one of your? 
amazing atmospheric shots of either Japan or making me look at the Santa Monica Pier in a way that yeah. I've never looked at before. It, it is so instinctual now. You know, it's like the 10 hours thing that Malcolm Gladwell talks about. Literally, the way that my eye works, you know, I'm, I'm looking in your studio right now and I see a composition that I think is interesting. It just happens. You know, I don't think about it necessarily. And that's what I love about the way that the photography thing works right now. It's just, it literally, because I've done it so many times over and over and over and over and over again, and I have all this sort of things in my brain that fire when I get excited about something that I see. It just happens. So you just have chronic composition. I, I have chronic composition. <laughs> yeah, I do. You have chronic composition syndrome. I think we just invented a thing. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but even, look, you're in New York. You can't, you can't walk down the street in New York, you know, at any time of day and not see the way light is traveling through a building or just the way, like, I, it just, this is a lot. There's a lot. And I could go on on that for a long time. <laughs> well, I think what you say is also interesting. I mean, you know, the, 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 the Gladwell 10,000 hours, which I think you've, you know, turned into, you know, 10 seconds, you're able to yeah. uh, crystallize that. What you're suggesting is that you're not always looking at your phone. And I think no. this is something that we have to start to reconcile because, People are staring at their phones, and they're missing the light. They're missing, you know, uh, those yeah. compositions that you're seeing. Yeah, I mean, it, it also it helps that um, that my entrance into photography wasn't through the screen of a of an iPhone. Um, you know, it was it was analog. It was it was practical, and so you know, I have a lot of fundamental fundamental skills that transfer through the digital mm. thing, but. You know, um, you know, I love to draw, you know, so a lot of the things that compositionally, I really, I really look the way I used to draw in terms of how I love to make angles and, and make things kind of converge. Um, but yeah, it's really important to um, take some time away from looking into a device and looking up and looking out, which again, going back to the out of homework, which was the purpose, you know, your people are on their phones and you get the opportunity to look off your phone to sort of look into the world. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's really, really uh, a very smart way of um, of operating because you're just going to you're just going to get more to life that way. Yeah. You know, it's it's, it's fascinating when you uh, are, are creating work now, how much of it is sketches, how much of it is off computer versus on computer? Um, for me and a lot of my team, actually, it's, you know, it's a lot of sketching. That's, it's actually really cool to see. Um, there's a guy that we work with, his name is Derrett, who is an old school type guy, an old school designer, and he's, he's amazing. You know, there's another a di designer, excuse me, um, his name is Danny Yee, who works in our team, who is a brilliant designer, but this guy can draw like you couldn't believe. And we have a lot of people that use their kind of hands, you know, um, and that was something that happened a lot at TBWA. It's definitely something that happened a lot at Wyden. So a lot of the great people that really love craft understand how to move things around in a dimensional space before they get on the flat space. And did you, uh, did you, Find that culture at Twitter, or you built that culture, that kind of maker culture? It exists there already, and I just get to tap into it and kind of exploit it more. Because it's an engineering company. Exactly. So you would think that there was some, oh, it's, it's some makers, you know? Oh, definitely, definitely. And there's a thing that they do at Twitter called Hack Week, 
where it's the engineers and you know everyone that comes together to make really interesting things that could potentially be something that ends up on platform one day but it's it's like you know the uh, high school science fair you know where you're making the weird thing out of like barbed wire or whatever wire and you know just being very sort of you know rough rugged and raw i guess so there's just a lot of like uh, volcanoes little mini Volca- volcanoes mini volcanoes <laughs> yeah exactly so for uh Again, just coming from the agency side into whether it's you know with Apple Beats or with uh, with with Twitter, what's one thing that's really different? Like if you could just say, God, you know, we just didn't do it that way as an agency, or we don't look at it, or uh, you know, I I don't know. I, I'm going to flip it. I'm going to say what's really working better <laughs> is the access to a CMO like across the room the access to a CEO down the hallway. There is an immediacy to understanding things in real time that as an agency person you just don't have access to. You know, you'll get a brief and it'll get vetted through the the system within an agency and then, you know, a team will respond to it and then it'll go back up before it goes, you know, on a plane mm-hmm. into, a, into a meeting. It's so much can happen and a day. So much can happen over the course of a week. Mm. And, you know, I, I think the thing that, you know, if I were to ever go back to an agency, it, I would really want to be able to have the ability to have um, what I have now, which is just that kind of constant communication yeah. because it really helps inform the work. But I, I would say the thing that works better in the in the context of Beats and definitely with Twitter is that I am thinking and coming up with things and I can literally if it, even if it's like if it's hot off the press I've just thought of something within five minutes I'm running over to Leslie and saying Leslie what do you think of this mm. and she could say oh, it's interesting or she could love it or she could say did you think about this this and this and I'm in a constant process of refining the work mm. before we actually deliver the work and you know I will say with the out of homework between Jack's comments and Leslie's comments and and you know a few other people on the team the work just kept getting better, right? You know, and that's again that back to that whole thing of listening and sort of contributing and sort of that mutuality and that reciprocity of of building the work together. Um, and the same thing happened when we did our brand film as well. You know, you know? I, I think you're you're living in where the future of the business is going, which is we're gone to the days where it's like goes into the creative black box. I mean, and I've been on, you know, that side of it where you get the brief and the rest of the agency's like, guys, go figure it out. Yeah. And it's hard. Yeah, and particularly, (laughs) you know, if you think about a tech company, like uh, any sort of in-the-moment company that's about culture, you, it just, it doesn't really, you can't exist that way and efficiently. You can exist, but it's not very efficient. Without question. So for you, maybe talk a little bit about your journey. I mean, did you always want to be an art director or were you always artistic? Or <laughs> Yeah, you know, I definitely have always had a, a visual sort of point of view of the world. Did I think I would end up in advertising? No. Um, when I went to VCU, I went with the aspirations of being a painter, hmm. you know, um, which turned into, you know, um, me really embracing photography more, which turned into me not getting into the program that I wanted to get into at VCU, which was the graphic design program, and, um, you know, getting into fashion, you know. 
and that it was a it was a zigzag, you know. And ultimately, I took an advertising class with a gentleman named Jerry Torsha from the Martin Agency. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget it, you know, first day of class where everyone's meant to bring in ads they'd done from a, the previous semester's class, and all I had was for photo- uh, photographs. Excuse me. And he looked through my photographs and he said, "You should be an art director." Hmm. And I said, "What's that?" And then he gave me a one show. He gave me a uh, art director's club, and you know, and maybe that was it. But what was interesting, you know, I started going through these books, and I kept seeing work from. Um, well, I didn't know the agency at the time, but I saw a bunch of work. And as I looked at the ads, I said to myself, "Whoever created these ads are people that I probably get along with." And then I looked at the credits, and it was Wyden and Kennedy. And from yeah, they're there, pretty good. <laughs> they're all right. And then, you know, I started seeing stuff from Fallon, you know, at the time, and then Shiat, mm. and, of course, Martin. And so um, I basically made a wish list of places I'd love to work, you know, Wyden, mm. Shiat, Martin, Fallon. I sent my stuff to Fallon. They, they didn't even respond. But They were a big headline agency then. <laughs> exactly. But, but to kind of get back to your question, it was, it was really unintentional. And but once I discovered advertising, I never looked back. Yeah. So and and you've worked on a lot of sports brands. I mean, how how is was sports a big part of your <laughs> life? Or do we look at me? Do I look like I play sports? <laughs> you you always look good to me. So I, I would say you know um, I love the culture of sport. You know, I tried to play football when I was in high school. And it didn't last very long. Um, anything overly athletic just wasn't my calling. Um, and but, you, I, but you're an observer. You're, I'm you're an almost observer. you're like a. Some ways, when I look at your stuff, and you know, obviously working with you closely, I always felt that you were like a journalist. You really yeah. kind of looked at things, uh, an artistic journalist. Yeah. Because you, I, I guess, it goes back to storytelling. Yeah. Yeah, and um, definitely, and with the sports thing, it sports happened to me. You know, um, when I got the call to join Wyden and Kennedy, there was two emotions that that hit me. One, I was completely like overwhelmed. And then I was like, oh, fuck, <laughs> you know, because I, I wasn't the typical jock. I wasn't a typical stats person. Um, but again, like you were just saying, to through observation and through love of the culture of sport, I found some interesting ways to tell some stories with some very, very talented people that I got to work with. And then let's talk a little bit. Of, you mentioned music before. So there's one particular artist I know that you like quite a bit. True. Uh, his name is Prince. Uh, True. Tell us about your. Uh, I'm going to just go out there and say your Prince obsession. Yeah. So, you know, when I was a, about maybe 14, 15, I discovered Prince. And what was interesting about the music for me at the time was um, I, I really connected with a lot of different thematically and it wasn't just about the sexual overtones of this music but there were a lot of things happening in that music that really connected with me on a lot of different levels and as I began to dig more into Prince's music uh, and understanding he was just a kid from the ghetto essentially mm. um, that was very passionate about one thing and he made it his mission to refine recreate and redefine himself through his music I, I connected with the idea of really being passionate about something and, and making it your life's work to be the best at it, but to also keep refining and redefining yourself within that sort of um, your, your passionate, the thing that you love. And, you know, um, Prince, has his, his approach to music, 
if we could all sort of have a creative approach in in one area, the way that he mastered music, and not just mastered it, but evolved it, mm-hmm. the spirituality, the things that he helped people connect with themselves through his music, you know, these are all the things that I would hope to be able to accomplish through our our industry to connect with the people that we are meant to sort of be selling to or, you know, helping shape messages around and to also keep pushing ourselves within our industry to to make ourselves different within it. You know, this move from, you know, agency to brand side or the client side, um, it it may seem, you know, unusual now, but it won't seem unusual in another five years. And it will be normal, you know, probably right. a lot sooner than that. But think about what Prince did in terms of, you know, uh, becoming his own distributor of his own music to really take the helm at a young age and write, arrange, produce, compose, everything. Um, I just think, you know, there's a lot of lessons to that I've learned through being an obsessive Prince fan that go beyond just the persona, the look, the sound, the image, and really get to the core of how do you become the best creative person at whatever thing you want to do and transform yourself and the people around you and bring people along. Yeah. No, I, I, I think all those lessons are right there. And I think, listen, you, you know, coming back to this podcast, Prince was a huge disruptor. Yeah. You know, and uh, I think him getting smart about, oh, it's not just the music, uh, the look, but the distribution. And the business. The business piece of it. Not everybody has that. That, I think, is kind of amazing, right? It, it is amazing. Again, go let's go back, like, you know, 15, 20 minutes. We're talking about client-agency relationships. You know, the crux of what I get to do well today is help def- definitively articulate business problems by the use of creativity, right? It's not the other way around. And, you know, again, agency, well, creative, 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 and let's run and go win some awards. I think the biggest win is affecting culture, and then the awards kind of come along. But the key thing in what we're saying right now is the business of how we use what we do to inform people's, to make people more resonant, right? Um so I think, you know, the business aspect of what Prince brought to the music industry and how he transformed the music industry in that way. If you don't own your masters, your masters own you. Um, the way the lessons that he's given to young artists, you know, um, you know, it, it's transcendent. This is why media has to come back into the agencies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what's uh, give me... Uh, I know you can't give me your favorite Prince song, but maybe you can give me two. Two you could not live without. Um, the two that I cannot live without. And I won't go so obscure that people can't access them, but I think they at least throw one out there so people have to look it up. But um, <laughs> the so the password on my computer is The Days of Wild, which is one of my favorite Prince songs. And then um, and that's, that's not obscure, but you, can, you should look for that one. And then another song that I, you know, could not live without is The Ballad of Dorothy Parker. Mm. Um, I'm a Dove's Cry guy, by the way. Well, you know, yes, it's good. Uh, Like, yes, I'm there. (laughs) Um, You know, but, you know, it always said um, there is a print song for every single mood, emotion, and moment in my life. So I definitely have had my When Doves Cry moments, you know, when I was a teen heartbreak. Um, you, I'm telling you, you go back to Dove's Cry today. You're, you're <laughs> going to feel it again. Yeah, but um, those those would be my top two: the Ballad of Dorothy, 
Ballad of Dorothy Parker and uh, The Days of Wild. Very good. Now, give it, give us one piece of advice now. So we've got some young listeners on the show, people who are just starting out in the business. We've got uh, interns at the agency. I, I'm forcing them to listen to the show. Um, I mean, what's one piece of advice for, for a creative person? Uh, what would you tell them uh, if you know, they want to they live a life that you're, you're living, where you get to, as you say, solve business problems through creativity? The biggest thing that I'm learning about myself at Twitter that I think has been ever-present since I decided I wanted to be in advertising is just one word, or maybe it's two, but the main word is uh, vulnerability. And I would say be vulnerable. Um, You know, there's just, for me, the way that I got into the industry and, and it was, you know, it wasn't unconventional by any stretch, but I was at a lot of places where, you know, I wasn't necessarily the person that, um, there wasn't a lot of people that looked like me, mm. you know, in, in creative departments, particularly at the Martin Agency. And it wasn't a bad thing, you know. Um, and allowing myself to be vulnerable, to to feel uncomfortable, and to not ever have a victim mentality, you know, in that respect, has been a, a huge asset to me. But the victim thing aside, I think vulnerability is the key to really allowing yourself to become full you know, to fully become whoever you want to be. Because um, things aren't going to always work out, you know, and, and then when things do, you know, um, you know, gut check really quickly, but don't rest on that and just keep moving forward. But, you know, I walked into Twitter not knowing anything about their business, about te- te- the tech industry, and the language that they spoke that I didn't speak. And it was uncomfortable. It is still uncomfortable. But that feeling of uncomfortableness has actually been a fuel, you know. And I don't know if you've seen the Defiant ones, but um, Jimmy Iovine, I think it was, was talking about, you know, you either use this kind of energy as a tailwind or a headwind. And I think I've used a lot of my career, the ups and downs, as a as a tailwind. You know, and I will also say this, Rob, the times that things were really fucked up and bad, it was my fault. Like straight up, you know, I can identify all the moments that were really not so great along my last 15 years and know fundamentally that I was not present, you know, and um, I am so much more present and so much more available and so much more vulnerable than I've ever been as a partner to my fiance, to my friends, you know, to this industry that I, um, you know, I, I don't. Allow, I don't allow myself to exist in good and bad. I, exi- I exist to be present, you know, and that vulnerability keeps me there 100%. Well, I love it. Be, be vulnerable. That's good. I like, uh, you know, don't be a victim. Be an agent. Uh, agent for good. Agent for change. And um, I think all I can close this show with, because this was excellent, is hashtag wisdom you yeah. dropped some hashtag wisdom my friend yeah thank you <laughs> so thanks so much for being here and uh it's you know it's a treat to know you I and hang us. out with you and i'm so happy that uh, you got to hang out with us and our and our listeners on the show so thank you you've been listening to the disruptor series podcast brought to you by tbwa shy day new york craving more disruption visit us at tbwa shy 